So we are in our book of Joshua. Okay, we're Joshua. This is our 102nd message in the book of Joshua. Today we're going to do something unprecedented. We're going to do an entire chapter what? in one. I, it's, I know. Do not get used to it. But we're going to do an entire. We're all doing all of Joshua chapter 16 today. Um, and, but before we get there, I do want to give us a little bit of a recap of where we came from last week. So our message last week was called the baggage of abundance. That was we wrapped up Joshua chapter 15. We were in verses. 20 all the way to 63. What we've seen is the process of working our way through the book of Joshua has been a slow one because it's been so incredibly in-depth. What we're finding now is it's going to pick up and ramp up speed-wise because they're going to cover some pretty important things but in larger chunks. But what we saw last week in that message, the baggage of abundance, was the fact that we were considering the inheritance that the, the, the tribe of Judah had received as they took possession of their portion of the promised land. So we took note of was the fact that this people that were nomadic, these people that were meager, that had had very little for a very, very long time. They've been carrying their possessions around for about 45 years. Now what happens is they uh, now have, are now uh, fulfilled or receiving this great abundance that was from the previous residents of this land. They would have received homes and lands and material, material wealth. All of this is now, uh, unfortunately, going to impact them. They are going to not only receive these physical things, but there are also these idols that will be in their villages that they were, their, their towns and their cities that they'll take over. Not only will the idols be there, they're made out of precious metals, but also the altars where these idols were worshipped. And God gave them instructions to destroy them. But what we noticed is we made the correlation of what they received, people that now have great abundance, was the fact that for Christians, there are some same kind of issues, earthly abundance the way it's going to impact them is the same way that it also impacts us. And so we talked about the fact that earthly abundance brought with it the, the temptation to idolatry. And we discussed the fact that so many times humanity, a time and time again, falls into the trap of, of worship, of, of idolatry. We worship things like material wealth. We worship possessions. We worship status. We worship power. We worship money. Really anything that, anything or anyone, realistically, that we can covet, right? We have American idols, right? We have people that people worship. So what we find is the fact that you and I are covetous by nature. And what we found out from Colossians chapter number 3, verse 5, is the fact that Colossians tells us that covetousness is, in fact, idolatry. And so there's an issue of idolatry in our world today. Then we looked at the second thing, which was that earthly abundance entangled us into the cares of the world. And we referenced the parable of the sower and the seed, which was touched on in Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, were the verses that we referenced here. And it says, And these are they which are, shown, which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and understand the word of God goes out, and the cares of this world, and this word, notice this phrase, and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things enter in. Notice this, it says, choke the word. So literally, as if you're speaking to me and I come up and choke you, you're going to stop talking, aren't you? Well, hopefully you'll try, but I'm going to go, oh. And it says here that it chokes the word. As the, God, as the word of God's trying to speak to our hearts, the cares of the world can choke it so that we can't hear it. And then also it tells us that it becometh unfruitful, that the very word of God that is the source of all faith, this powerful book that is eternal, this, fruit, this book becomes unfruitful because of the cares of the world. And what we talked about is the fact that as Christians, many times we get caught up in the day-to-day -day issues of living, and because we get so caught up in those things, we lose sight of the mission of why it is we're here, right? It's not about survival. It's because your life is supposed to touch the life of someone else, right? We've been given a mission or a, a commission. And then we also looked at the fact that earthly abundance has a tendency to draw us towards the lure of compromise. 
And this is the point we talked about, how shifting our dependence off of God and onto ourselves. Listen, this is the pathway to destruction in our Christian lives. We should not be in dependence of ourselves. You and I will never possess our promised land. For us, it is a spiritual place of abundance where we walk with God in fellowship. It's a place of of holiness. So this is what God has for us. And we'll never get victory in our Christian lives through depending upon ourselves. We'll only get it through depending upon God fully. And so recognizing what this land, this this land of abundance is now going to mean to them, certainly in what they're going to gain, but at the same time, the danger that it poses to them also. This is what we recognize, the fact that these Israelites as a whole are going to struggle in different areas. So today we're going to move from the tribe of Judah over to to the children of Joseph. This is going to be Manasseh. And Ephraim. We'll start with Ephraim today. And I want us to be aware of the fact that as we examine each of these tribes over the next six chapters, that each one, we're going to learn something about them. They're going to start to sort of reveal kind of a bit of their identity or their personality. And it's important for us to pay attention to this. Some of them we're going to relate to easily. Others we may not relate to all at all. But what we need to understand is the fact that as we're going through and we're looking at them, what they're going to do is kind of give us a spectrum of, of humanity. And what we'll find is the fact that, you know what, don't lose sight of the fact that these are real people, real people from history, who dealt with real issues and real struggles. And so we're going to be able to relate to them in some way or shape or form as they deal with the abundance of their world becoming available to them, and you and I are living in a land of abundance as we speak. So as they face their challenges, now we're going to see the children of Joseph, okay, these are uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're going to prepare to, to receive their inheritance, and we're going to consider as... They do, in our message this morning, which is an unusual title, but it's called subjugating sinfulness. To subjugate means to control or to dominate. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. For the gift of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the spirit of God that is working. Thank you for our song service, Lord. I could feel your presence, Lord. I know that you are actively working in our hearts even now. And Lord, you know my desire is not to be heard, not to be important. Uh, Lord, not to even be remembered, but God, I do pray that your word would go forth today. God, that you would preach with power uh, through this vessel. And Lord, that you would help me to disappear. Uh, Lord, that the words that I would share be the ones that you would personally, you would choose, not the ones that I would choose. God, would you let your word speak to our hearts and let us leave this place being changed a little bit more into the image of your son. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be opposite Joshua chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to butcher the names of these places. I'm just going to tell you up front. I don't know how you pronounce them, but we're just going to, you say it however you want to in your brain. I'm going to say it the way I want to say it, but we'll just read it. All right, and a lot of the children of Joseph fell from Jordan by Jericho, under the water of Jericho, under the east, to the wilderness that goeth up from Jericho throughout Mount Bethel, and goeth out from Bethel to Luz, and passeth along under the borders of Archai to, the, to Adaroth, and goeth down westward to the coast of Jephleti, under the coast of Beth Horon, the nether, and to, Gez, and to Gezer, and the goings out thereof are at the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. I want you to notice that they're identified as a whole right there, okay? As the children of Joseph. Verse 5 says this, And the border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. Even the border of their inheritance on the east side was Adaroth Adar, unto Beth Horon, the upper. And the border went out toward the sea of Michmathah. On the north side, and the border went out eastward into Tanath Shiloh, and passed it on to the east of Genoha. And it went down from Genoha to Adaroth and to Naroth, uh, and came to Jericho, and went out at Jordan. The border went out from Tapua westward under the river of 
Cana and the goings out thereof were at the sea. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim by their families. And the separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. And they drave not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve under tribute. And so as we walk through this chapter, what we're going to notice is, first of all, we're going to pay attention to two things that God's going to show us about himself. First of all, that he rewards the faithfulness of fathers. And then secondly, that he desires families to be united. But our third point, okay, our third point is going to be really, really relevant to us, the attitude of the tribe of Ephraim. We're going to look at how it is they're going to address the threat that's posed to them by the wicked population of Canaan. And we will see our third point is going to be this, ungodly methods don't deliver godly results. Okay? This is incredibly important for us to understand as we function in the world today. And this one, of course, this is going to be super, super interesting. And that one right there is a life-changing principle, a generation-changing principle, if we will learn to apply it. But before we get there, let's take a look at what we show in our first point and the fact that the Lord rewards the faithfulness of fathers. What we find in verses 1 through 4 is that they are identified as the children of Joseph. All the other tribes are going to be recognized by their individual names, but you'll see they'll be rep- represented by two different names, individually, Ephraim and Manasseh, but also they're going to be recognized as the sons, the children of Joseph. Okay, So we see here what God's showing us is the fact that God is rewarding them. These guys are being identified as the children of Joseph, and they're recognized this twice in this introduction. Now, if we go back into Genesis 48, and we were going to understand what God's plan was, Joseph was Jacob's son. He was one of the 12. But Jacob is going to be split into two different tribes, okay? What's going to happen is Jacob is actually going to take Ephraim and Manasseh, and he's going to make them as if they are his own sons, individual tribes. Genesis 48, verses 3 through 5. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz. Notice that's in the the land of of the Ephraimites, because we just read that. (laughs) In the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, and I will make thee a multitude of people, and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. Here's the promise, right? This is God. Jacob is relaying the promise to Joseph. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee into Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Sibion, they shall be mine. They're going to be my boys, okay? And so if this is the case, then why is God referencing them as, as the children of Joseph? The reason why they are elevated is because of the testimony of Joseph. Ephraim and Manasseh are going to have struggles. They are going to struggle with their submission to God. But can I tell you this? Joseph never struggled with his submission to God. Joseph is one of the two perfect types of Christ in the Bible, Daniel and Joseph. He's amazing. So he had this incredible testimony from the beginning, and guess what? All the way to the end. Recognize the fact that he would not even allow his body to be buried in Egypt. Right? All the way to the end. Notice Genesis chapter 50, verses 22 through 26. And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived in 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. I want you to remember that. The children also mature, the sons of Manasseh, were brought up unto Joseph's knees. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Again, transferring that same promise. Now he's telling him, telling them. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. Notice this. You shall carry up my bones from hence. Listen, don't go leaving me behind, fellas. When you leave, gather my bones up. 
So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him. Notice this. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He was not buried. They put his body to be stored in a coffin because he had a plan. Joseph, listen, his faithfulness extended all the way to his corpse. He would not allow his body to be buried in a land that God had not chosen for him or for his people. And there's another little detail in there that I want us to pick up in verse number 23. It says, And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. And what's interesting is when we go into Joshua 24, this is Joshua has 24 chapters, okay? The last chapter, right near the very end of it, you're going to hear this. It says this, And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Sirah, which is in Mount Ephraim on the north side of the hill of Gash, talking about Joshua. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua and which had known all the works of the Lord and they'd done for Israel. So we see two generations, two faithful generations. And then we see, what about the third? Well, that's where Joshua ends. The next book in the Bible is the book of Judges. And the book of Judges chronicles for us that third generation and their failure to follow God, their slip into unfaithfulness. And what we notice in verse number 32 of Joshua 24, we look what just happens to show up at the very end here. Check this out. They get one more thing. The ultimate example of faithfulness, Joseph, verse 32. That's the relevance of those bones. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried there in Shechem, in a parcel of ground, which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. So not only have they had Joseph, the children of Joseph had the stories of Joshua's faithfulness and all that they had heard, but they also have had examples of his leadership. And then on top of that, in their own land, they have the body of faithful Joseph buried there as a memorial. And yet, unfaithful, they will become. In that third generation, what we're going to see. And what's interesting about this is the fact that there are researchers that have done studies on Christianity. And they talked about how it functions generationally as they study it. And there's something relevant in that third generation. What we find is the first generation, well, they're the ones that came out of the world. Okay, They came out of the world. They didn't know God. They weren't raised in a Christian home. And they got saved, man. God came down and he did a miraculous work. And buddy, they got it. I mean, they got it. And they found themselves walking with the Lord. They were gloriously saved. They had a testimony for Christ. They they passionately served the Lord and they sought His, His will for their lives. But then they had kids, that next generation. Now, these kids are raised in a Christian home. They grew up in church. They learned the stories of the Bible. They're familiar with, with Scripture. And they saw their parents' example. Now, they didn't necessarily know their parents' old lives. They didn't see the transition that took place from who they were to who they, who they become. But what they did was they eventually, over time, they developed their own faith. They eventually got saved. And what we find is the fact that they develop a walk with God that's not as passionate as their families, not as passionate as their mom and dad. Because their mom and dad came from, from destruction into salvation, and they recognized, and they were appreciative for what it is they'd received. Amen. But the kids go, well, I mean, I've always lived in a Christian home. What are you, what are you saving me from? Okay, yeah, okay, I stole a piece of candy. Okay, whatever. 
right? So they don't quite appreciate what it is that God is doing in their life. So their walk isn't as passionate. And yes, they will go to church unless something else better comes along. Another opportunity shows up. They have prayer at meals, right? They pray over their food. They have a Bible app on their phone that, man, it'll pop up a verse every day for their reading, whether they want to or not. But then there's the, the next generation, the third generation. And here's where the things struggle. Because recognize each, whenever, whenever you and I accept something into our life that's not godly, you know what? Our kids receive it, and they'll take it as being, as being uh, something ungodly. We allow it into our lives. What will happen is they'll take it, they'll receive it, and you know what? They'll do even more of it. Right? Every time we concede, they're going to concede even greater because we've set an example. The Bible says don't give place to the devil. So every generation, we're transferring into them what it is we believe faith to be. So what we find is in that third generation, guess what? They don't really see the purpose of a relationship with God. You know, they're Christians. Sure, I grew up in a Christian home. Yeah, I believe in God. I mean, I don't read the Bible. You know, we never really prayed that much in our house. I mean, I pray, you know, we prayed over dinner and stuff. Like, what's the point? God knows what I'm going to eat. It's not a big deal. And so they don't have this walk with God and understand the fact that not only do they not really get saved, they may tell themselves that they are. They'll pray if there's an emergency situation, perhaps. But overall, they look and they go, you know what? That intimate, thriving relationship with God, that's something for old people. That's something my grandparents, right? That's, that's, that's their story. And so what we notice is this, this degradation that takes place in faith. Unfortunately, this is statistically what's going on in our world. And America, understand, America did not get where it is today in one generation. It's taken a series of steps of concessions to take place. Where this country that used to be considered a city on a hill, the example, a Christian nation, well, that's no longer the case. The world now looks to the United States to figure out how it is you embrace sin. How in the world do you rebel against God and stand in defiance of Him? Amen. And interestingly enough, when we go back and we look at the recap of the, of the Israelites that followed Joshua, I want you to listen to their story. Listen to this from Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. Okay, here we go. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, first generation, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, second generation, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, and he did for Israel. For Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border and in his inheritance, Timoth Harris, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gash. And also that generation, the second, were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, the third, which knew not the Lord nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them, who they did not drive out, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. Could this not be recording the story of our world yes. today? Amen. Our country today? Now, obviously, this is not the story for every single family. Some of you guys are investing in your kids. You're doing an incredible job. You're establishing and doing amazing things. But can I tell you, sadly, for many people, that is the case. Look at a Christianity in a state today where it is. Look at churches around us that have conceded every aspect of what it means to be holy. 
every aspect of what it means to be righteous in order to celebrate humanity and have a party together and have great worship. Woo! Worship! Man, the worship's hot. It's awesome. Love the worship. You know, the very first time the Bible shows up, the word worship shows up in Scripture is in Genesis 22. There's no music. There's no singing. There's no dancing. You know what it is? It's Isaac being sacrificed on the mountain. It's a picture of Christ's death. It is a picture of sanctification, of sacrifice unto God. That's what worship is. But the world has created its own version of worship, and now people celebrate. And what does it say in the book of Revelation, chapter 3? I stand at the door and knock, and if any man will hear me, I will answer him, and he will come. I will come into him, and he will sup with me, and 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 me with whatever Howard says. You got it. (laughs) Couldn't get it out. But the point is this. There's churches right now that are having worship, and Jesus is going, can I come in? I'd love to come to the party. Is there any chance I can come with you guys? Because you know what? They're celebrating themselves, and they'll call it all in for Jesus. But it's about the emotional experience. Worshiping the Lord is about sacrifice. It's about giving of ourselves. What we have to ask ourselves is, which generation are we? Where are we right now in our walk? Right? Are we the first generation that's thriving and surrendering and submitted to God? Are we the second generation that's maybe we know what to do, but we're not necessarily doing it? Can I promise you that the next generation, the third generation, guess what? It's watching. It's learning. It's paying attention. You see, America has experienced the blessings it has because of a legacy of faith that was established by our forefathers. And what's happening now is those blessings are running out, and the evidence of that truth is, 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 is revealing to us every single day. And we have to ask ourselves, are we contributing to the slide of America into darkness by doing nothing and compromising our faith? Or, listen, are we standing up and shining as lights for God, making a difference? Individually, we can make a difference because our lives impact other lives. We impact our families. We impact our spouses. We impact our our children. We impact our neighbors. So first, then the next thing we see is the fact that God desires families to be united. Keep in mind that Ephraim and Manasseh were brothers, the sons of Joseph. Verses 5 through 9 define for us the borders of the inheritance of the tribe of Ephraim. Now, what's interesting about Ephraim's territory is the fact that it's going to border that land of Manasseh. Now, qualifier, only half of Manasseh. Okay? Because remember, half of Manasseh chose to be in the wilderness. Okay? So they've separated themselves. What God intended to be united has been divided and separated by the will of man. Okay? This is evident because the Manassans, they said, listen, I'm not sure if that's how you say it, Manassans, we're going to call them the Manassans. They chose something different. But what's evident is the fact that, you know what, that same issue of division, what God wants to be together, many times the will of man wants to divide. Look at marriages. In Mark 10, 9, the Bible says, Therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Man meaning mankind. No man or woman. And yet, because of the will of men and women in our world today, marriage, listen, as an institution of faithfulness and unity, is dying. It's dying because of the will of man. But with the tribe of Manasseh, that is in the promised land, what we'll see is God's going to work to unite Ephraim and Manasseh together. I want you to pay attention to what it says in verse number 9. And it says, in sep- and it says, In the separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. So here we simply see something very, very unusual. There is no other place where something like this happens. Understand, Ephraim is going to have its separate cities They're not going to be in its own territory. Their separate cities are actually going to be in Manasseh's territory. And we go, okay, 
what does that mean? What are the separate cities, okay? So what are the separate cities that are defined for us? Actually, they're cities of refuge for when someone's going to face justice. This is where they're going to go, and they're going to be kind of in holding, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 19 tells us all about it, but verses 1 through 3 define it for us here. When the Lord thy God hath cut off the nations whose land the Lord thy God giveth thee, and thou succeedest them, and dwellest in their cities and in their houses, thou shalt separate three cities for thee in the midst of the, of the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. Thou shalt prepare thee away and divide the coast of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to an inheritance. Notice God's always reminding them back that he gave it to them into three parts that every slayer may flee thither. It talks about slayers, but understand it's actually many other crimes related to it. And so what we see here is the fact that they're each supposed to do this in their own specific lands, except Ephraim is exempt. The cities that they're going to use for their separate cities are actually in Manasseh's territory intertwining these two tribes in a way that no other tribes are connected anywhere else. And so there's an unusual connection, an unusual unity to these brothers together. And though they're separate tribes, you're going to find that many times they function as one. And what we see is God always, always has been a God of unity. He's always been a God of restoration. If we go to the time of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, from that day forward, what we see is God working to restore humanity back to himself. He wants that family, right? He wants God to, to uh, if we look through scripture, literally every part of the Bible from the beginning to the end, it's all about restoration, 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 restoration. It's about God receiving the glory that he deserves from his children that will worship him in, in spirit and in truth. That's God's desire. So we see this aspect of reconciliation. God has a heart to reconcile his creation, his children back to their creator. 1 Timothy 2.4 says this, Who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's, this is the mission that God has set us on to help reconcile the world. What is the vehicle that God created to reach the world? The church. You and me. Our life is supposed to make a difference. It's not about surviving. It's about making a difference. Most people are just trying to live life and survive from this day to the next day. That's not what this is about. If it was about that, if it was just about you surviving until you one day stand before the Lord and you work on your sanctification, your holiness, which is great, but if you never let your life spill into the life of someone else, what's the point? God's trying to reach the world. Notice this, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 21. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself. How? By Jesus Christ. The death on the cross, Jesus gave us a way to be reconciled back to God. And hath given to us, notice this. So now we have a job. Given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We're just supposed to minister to the world to reconcile it. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. He's the one that did the work. Not imputing their, their trespasses unto them. And hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So I've given you the mission, the ministry, and I've given you the word of God to reach them. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Since Jesus is not here, let us speak for him. This is his message to the world. Be ye reconciled to God. That's what he's saying. Be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. A restored family. That's, that's what this is about. Why do you think the biblical family is under attack in our culture today? 
because it is a representation of Christ and the church. Amen. It's always an attack on unity. And so we've seen how God rewards the faithfulness of fathers as he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh because of Joseph's testimony. Then we saw how the Lord desires families to be united as he connected the tribes of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim through the shared borders and the connection of the cities of, of refuge. But our third point, this is the one that we really need to listen to, right? The attitude of the Ephraimites toward the threat posed by the wicked population of Canaan, we're going to see here that ungodly methods don't deliver godly results. Verse 10, And they drave not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve under tribute. Okay? Now, this is the same problem we saw with Judah. Remember, Judah said they went into Jerusalem, and the Bible says that they could not drive them out. Okay? Could not drive them out. means they tried, but they couldn't do it because they were trusting in themselves. Notice there's a difference here. These guys, it doesn't say they couldn't do it. It just simply says they drave not out. So they made a conscious choice, a calculated choice, not to do what God had warned them to do. Notice verse 10, But the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day, and serve under tribute. What that means, serve under tribute, means they made them slaves. They did not do what they, what they were told to do. They took those Canaanites and they decided to, 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 to make them serve them. Well, listen, God's warning to them was clear about relating to them or not driving them out. Listen, go back and we look at Numbers 33, verses 55 through 56. Before they ever got into Canaan, he said this, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass, this is a promise, that those which let, that ye let remain, okay, we have see right here, of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. Listen to this part. Verse 56, moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. You know what? They were supposed to be scattered among the world. And because you will not drive them out, I will scatter you across the world. The very thing that they were supposed to experience, you'll experience because of your choices. So we see the Ephraimites had disregarded God's warning. They disregarded it altogether, and they applied human wisdom to their situation. And they reasoned to themselves, instead of eliminating the threat, what we will do is we will harness that threat, and we'll use it to our advantage. And this is what believers do on a regular basis. Recognizing areas of weakness in their Christian lives, and instead of submitting to God, Instead of addressing it and seeking true holiness, what they'll do is they'll try to find a way to incorporate their sin, their pet sin, whatever form it may be, into their lives in a different way. What they'll do is, opposed to letting it control them, they'll control it. They'll alter the level of influence or dependence they have upon this, this thing in their lives. Let me give you some examples. Um, you know, somebody says this. Hey, listen, I know I've had problems with alcohol in the past. <laughs> I, I mean, I know there's been some nights that I just, you know, lost control. But now that I'm aware of it, now that I recognize this weakness in myself, what I've got now is so when I go with my friends, I just have a couple of beers. And as soon as I start to feel it affect me, I'm done. I cut myself off. Right? Oh, hey, listen, I know that I've got this person in my life, and they've been a bad influence since I've ever, the whole time I've ever known them. But, you know, now that I know the way that they've lured me in the past. And because I recognize that, 
when they try to get me to do stuff like that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not. I, now that I'm aware, I, I'm able to be. I, I, I won't. They, they won't influence me now. We can still spend time. It's not a big deal. Oh, hey, hey, listen. You know what? I know pornography is wrong. <laughs> I totally see it that way. I know it's wrong. But listen, R-rated movies, that's not pornography. What's the big deal? I know stealing's wrong, and I'm not a thief. I'd never steal. But I mean, dude, look, <laughs> they forgot to charge me. Right on. That's a blessing, huh? Right? Right? Isn't that the way we see it? We don't hold ourselves to a standard to say, I'm going to seek holiness. We go, how close can I get to sin and also call myself a Christian? This is the world we live in today. Why is generationally where we are where we are today? It's because we've gotten so used to accepting sin in our lives and trying to use things that are ungodly to accomplish godly work. How in the world do we think we're going to reach the world by living half-hearted Christian lives? A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And yet we think we're going to be this on-fire Christian who's got garbage in our life that we need to deal with and address. I'm not pointing fingers at any of you guys. I have things I have to deal with too. We're all living in this world. We're all caught up in the same stuff. We're all trying to attain our promised land. But what happens is the fact that we have this issue of fleshly desires and we've allowed them in our lives. But listen, God says that's not to be the way. You're supposed to forsake them. You're supposed to drive them out of your life. Why was the whole warning about the Canaanites? Don't let them stay in the promised land. A picture of your spiritual walk with me that's holy and perfect. Don't let it be there because guess what it'll do? It'll ruin it. It'll ruin it. You can't leave one of them. You can't accept sin in one small way. You must address it all and see it all with the eyes that I do. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. Remember the word shall is always a promise. Shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth, and notice the word, forsaketh them shall have mercy. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteousness and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God loves us, man. He just wants us to be honest with him about what we have going on in our lives instead of hiding it, trying to concede or find a way to make it work for us. No, we're not, it's not to be a part of our lives at all. Listen, no matter how, try, how hard we try to convince ourselves or justify our sin and make it somehow fit into our Christian life. It's not, it's not right. God cannot and will not use unrighteousness to accomplish His will. And you and I are struggling with surrendering. And so what happens is if we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, if, if I'm questioning if what's in my life is, is holy, if, if, it's, if it's godly, if I should do it or I shouldn't do it, let me just give you a question to ask yourself. Imagine... That the Lord Jesus Christ manifested himself in physical form. And he's sitting right beside you when you're going to do whatever it is you're questioning. Would you still do it? And would he do it with you? Leviticus 20 verse 6 through 7 says this. And the soul that turneth after such as have familiar spirits, after wizards, to go a whoring after them, accepting sin in their lives. 
I will even set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among his people. Sanctify, here it comes again. Sanctify yourselves, therefore. Cut yourself away from the world and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. God calls us. His call to us, his example to us is holiness. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot do it in your flesh. You can only do it through surrendering to God. There is no such thing as partial holiness, right? That's like saying, you know my friend Bob, you can mostly trust him. <laughs> mostly, right? I, the, the ride we're going to go on at the carnival, I hear these are mostly safe. Your water is just, just a little bit poisoned, <laughs> Right? And we, oh, that, it's easy to see there. Notice what it says here in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24. And I'm almost done. It says, For even hereunto were ye called, notice this, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, okay, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself unto him that judged righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. He did all the work that we being dead to sins, this is the goal, should, notice the wording, should live unto righteousness. It's not a guarantee because you're saved. You're going to live a righteous life, but you have an opportunity to do so if you allow the Spirit of God to work in you. We were, I was talking to, to Isabel this morning and we're talking about prayer. And it comes down to this. It's like God wants a relationship with us and it's all about surrendering to his will. Not our will. We're selfish by nature. We pray to God when we need Him. We want something. And God's saying, I don't want that. I want a relationship with you that's a loving relationship. Consider if you had a relationship with somebody and they told you all their, their deepest heart, they just poured themselves into you and you made you like, man, they're, they're being so true and surreal and so awesome. It's amazing. And then you're like, yeah, well, you know, uh, I just got some problems coming up and it'd be great if you'd take care of them. And that's it. What kind of relationship is that? I'm going to pour my heart into you and you're just going to tell me a list of wants? What I can do for you? No. God says, I want to hear your heart. I want to know where you come from. I want to know your brokenness. I want to know your, your pain, your sadness, your, 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 your heart. I want to know you. Though God knows us, He wants to hear from us our willingness to connect with Him. Again, it's all about a relationship. This is a father and his children. Man. What kind of father doesn't want to hear his children's hearts? God loves us. Amen. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to walk with Him in righteousness. The problem is when I have sin in my life, things that I've accepted, I'm saying they're okay. What I'm doing is putting a division between me and God. I divide myself from Him. I insulate myself from the love of God because of the sinfulness in my life. And God's saying, no, I want you to be righteous. Be dead to sins that you should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. He says, listen, I suffered so that we could have this relationship. I brought everything I could to this. I suffered every stripe. I took every thorn. I took every moment where I gasped for breath. I did it so that you and I could be connected and have a love relationship. And you treat me superficially. You give me a list of wants and desires. But I did it so we could be one. <laughs> Can I tell you, 
if we're going to impact the next generation for the cause of Christ, we have to be righteous. We have to be different. We have to, we have to love the world the way that he loves. We have to hate what he hates. We have to be this person in our communities, in our families, in our personal lives, in our quiet time. And get serious. Assessing ourselves, right? This is what so many times we come to church. All I'm trying to do is help us all to assess ourselves, to look at where we stand, right? What's the goal of the Word of God? To rebuke us, to reprove us, and to exhort us unto righteousness, man, to help us to be better, and so we have to consider the image of Christ that our life displays to the world around us. Because it's why we're here. Are you and I in the process of subjugating sin and trying to keep it in our lives? Or are we sanctifying ourselves from sin? I can promise you right now, whichever one you choose, the next generation is watching and learning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the truths that you've revealed to us. Lord, for the power, God, that the scripture has. Thank you, Lord, that we can look into the Old Testament and find things that are so alive for today. Thank you, Father, for the work that you've done in us. Lord, I do pray for the work that you'll do through us, that we'll be ministers of righteousness to this broken world. Help us to take the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation, and be ambassadors to this broken world. God, we're given a very limited amount of time on this earth. It's fleeting. We're not promised tomorrow. I do pray for my brothers and sisters right now, all of us, that we would sanctify those things in our lives, God, that are not godly. That, Lord, we would set our hearts and our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And that, God, we would determine in our hearts that we'll make a difference for the cause of Christ in this generation to come. Our lives make a difference. We may not think that anyone's watching, but I can promise you, Lord, we're all under a spotlight. And there are lost people watching how we deal with every moment of this life. Help us to display the image of Christ. The love, the joy, the peace, the gentleness, the goodness, the meekness, the temperance. Help us display your love to this broken world. It's what the world desperately needs. America's in a dire strait because Christians have hid the light under a bushel. It's time to remove the bushel. It's time. It's time to shine. I do pray for my brothers and sisters that, Lord, we will get the bushel off and that, Lord, we will shine. Let us be righteousness in the midst of unrighteousness, light and darkness. Be salt to make a difference in the lives of those around us. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, you're here today and you say, listen, I don't know where I stand with God. I, I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I'm just religious. There are a lot of religious people that are going to go to hell. I just want to tell you that. It's not about being religious. It's not about believing in God. There are people in this room today watching this online, listening to it recorded, that believe they're on their way to heaven based upon the fact that they believe that there is a God. Can I promise you that the devil knows that God exists? He does not doubt his presence. He does not doubt his power. They be- he believes his word and yet he's not going to heaven. The Bible says that the the devils tremble in the presence of God. Listen, it's not about an emotional thing. It's not about a, a moment and a time. It's not about some magic prayer. It is a broken heart calling out to a loving God. He died on the cross with you in mind, and he loves you desperately. And all you have to do to receive him is just simply submit and surrender as he calls you 
Jesus said, no one cometh to me, but the Father draw him. And if you feel God drawing you, all you have to do is surrender. And we do that through prayer. Now, there's no magic in the prayer. It's your heart God's listening to. But I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. I'll lead you in prayer. But it's not the words. It's your heart that God's listening to. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ in your heart and in your mind, repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm so sorry for my sin. I understand that I've separated myself from you because of it. And I also know and believe that you died on the cross to pay the debt that I owe for that sin. Thank you for loving me so much.